Okay, assignment-wise, we have a third article review, the last one that is due today. So if you have it, you can of course turn it in in class. You can turn it in uh, on D2L anytime between now and 6 o'clock tomorrow for full credit. Exam 4 is coming up on Monday. I finished up everything on... Did I bring any of those? Probably not. I finished up everything on the material. We just have to do the summary, which I'm going to finish up today, and then we'll, we'll be on to Chapter 16. So the material, we've covered everything there. And that will be on Monday. <laughs> similar style to the previous exams, similar questions. Although I did say, if you weren't here last time, I'll bring some up for lab. I forgot to bring any more of the review sheets that I gave that you can bring to the exam. So I gave out some of those summary questions. They are available on D2L, but I can bring another copy if anybody was not here on um, Wednesday and needs a copy, you're allowed to fill that out, answer any of those questions, write any other notes you need to on those papers and bring them back and use them for the exam on Monday. Uh, iTunes Quiz 3 will be up on Monday and will include the pictures through today. So I will have that available on there. It'll go from the 13th of October when we finish the last, quiz, last iTunes Quiz up through today's picture will be the last one included. And then there'll be one more iTunes quiz starting with tomorrow's pictures through probably the last day of class. And that'll be available that week of the final exam that you can go ahead and, and take that if you, if you like. It'll be available up through, up through the time of the, the day of the final exam, I should say. That way I can, once the final exams are done, I can submit grades. Homework 7, uh, we're still on schedule in this class, so you're still due on the 23rd. I had to adjust my other class a little bit. Quiz 7 is due the same, same week. Except that's the wrong chapters. That wouldn't be you. Chapters 23 and 24 are beyond the, beyond the book, beyond the edge of the book, which it's chapters 15 and 16. So, should have left that up, would have really thrown everybody, but no, chapters 15 and 16 will be available the 23rd. We'll be starting 16 today and finishing that up probably on Wednesday. And then your solar observations project, which we're going to be working on in lab today, is going to be due on the 30th. So, a little bit of what's, what's coming up. Any questions on that? 15, okay. All right, picture of the day for today. A moon shadow sequence. So this is a set of pictures that were taken from the solar eclipse this week. Everybody saw it, right? Everybody saw the solar eclipse a couple days ago? Nobody traveled to Australia to go see it? Eh, so I wasn't here. If it had been here, I surely would have been letting you know all semester that we're going to have a nice solar eclipse visible from any place close. No, this one was actually in Australia. So unless you were planning on a nice big trip to Australia this, this week, um, you, wouldn't, you, would have, you would have missed it. But you can see here, it starts off at sunrise as the images were being taken. And very red image, you're looking through a lot of atmosphere. The sun at sunrise or sunset does look red looking through all that atmosphere. Similar to the way stars going through all that dust look a little bit redder because you're going through a lot more material and the blue light is more efficiently scattered than the red. And as the sun rose, you can see that it's the moon is moving into it and taking off bigger and bigger chunks until it's completely gone, completely blocked out. Not completely, there's still something there. We're seeing the corona of the sun. So that's not actual sunlight from the sun. That's actually the corona. That's the outer atmosphere of the sun being that is now visible. It was here all along, right? It was here, it was here, it was here, it was here. It was still, still there. It's just so much fainter than the rest of the rest of the sun that you don't see it. Now someone in my last class actually asked why, then why is it so bright in that one image? And what I estimated is probably that these pictures, when the sun's out, you're just, you're taking take a picture of the sun, you're taking a very quick exposure. Real, click real, real fast. 
Probably what happened here is when you got to totality, it got real dark. So you could actually leave the shutter open on the camera for a much longer time to illuminate and be able to see the corona. If you'd taken a fast image as you'd been taking with the others, you wouldn't have been able to see anything. So it was actually a much longer image taken for that one. These would have been, you know, instant clicks on the camera. This would have been a much longer exposure, leave the camera open, you know, for for a minute or so, or 30 seconds, a minute, depending on how long it needs to get that kind of exposure. And then as the sun continued to rise, the moon continuing to move off towards this direction relative to the sun, and the sun starts to reappear from behind, from behind the moon. So nice picture of the beautiful solar eclipse that we all missed here because, you know, Hack wouldn't pay for us for a field trip to Australia this week. So would have been nice. We would have been able to, you know, do a solar eclipse, but no, no such luck this time. Questions? Questions, questions. No questions. All right. Then we will go and finish chapter 15, which we were just about done with, and get started on chapter 16. And I had really just finished up this slide, but I'll go back over it one more time, just as a review here, with what we were looking at. And what it is is that we'd had, we'd, we discovered these very strange stars. So these stars that had spectral lines that we could not identify. They didn't match up with anything we were used to on a typical star. So trying to identify those, eventually they were identified. And they were identified in a very simple manner is that they were determined to be hydrogen. But instead of being where the hydrogen lines are supposed to be, they were shifted vastly to the red. So instead of being here in the spectrum where they're supposed to be, a nice pattern of hydrogen lines, they were way over to the red portion of the spectrum, which is why people didn't recognize them at first. They were way out of place and nobody was expecting them to have been that redshifted. That large of a redshift means they're moving very fast away from us and means that they are then, by Hubble's law, very distant. Hubble's law related the velocity at which something is receding to the distance. So. We measured that they're very large redshifts, means they're very fast moving away from us, means they're extremely far away. Okay, no big deal, except we still see them. These things are billions of light years away, tens of billions of light years away, and yet we can still see them relatively prominently. No, they're not as bright as the brightest stars in the sky to us, but they're easily easy to see through a decent telescope. They're easy to pick up and detect. They're not the faintest objects in the universe, even though tra the light has traveled over that incredible distance. That means these have to be the brightest. These quasars have to be some of the brightest objects that exist. In order for us to be able to see something 13 billion light years away, as some of them are, it's got to be incredibly bright. It's not like we're seeing it just a few light years away for a star or millions of light years away for a galaxy. We're going up to billions of light years. A normal galaxy like the Milky Way would be invisible at this distance. You wouldn't be able to detect it. It would not be sending enough light out. So there's some incredible energy source, which is that black hole at the center that is giving off a tremendous amount of energy. So that's sort of where we finished up last time. And then I said, I'm going to go over. Is this where we finished? Yeah, wait. No, we finished. We went past that, didn't we? Nobody reminded me. You just wanted to hear all that again, right? Okay, this is where we were. I, we did go through all, I did go through all of that stuff last time. I was saying, wait a second, there's too many slides left. I knew I was right at the end. What we were really finishing was synchrotron radiation. Well, now I can do extra questions on quasars since you've had you know, extra material on them, extra coverage. The other thing that we see from the quasars is that we see a completely different spectrum. Not only do we see those incredibly bright objects, 
but we see a different type of radiation than we're used to seeing from a galaxy. If we look at a galaxy, we tend to see a nice, what we call thermal radiation, radiation from stars. Some sort of peak drops off towards the ultraviolet and into the x-rays, drops off slower off into the radio. What we see from these is what we call synchrotron radiation. It's caused by electrons being highly accelerated around a magnetic field. So those electrons spiral along the magnetic field lines and as they're being accelerated along them, they emit radiation. And that radiation is very intense in the radio portion of the spectrum. Less so in the x-rays, but still there. There's actually still a significant amount compared to thermal radiation, so you get quite a different type of spectrum. So if we look at, look at one of these objects in the radio, they're emitting a lot more radio radiation than we would ever expect from a typical galaxy. It's a completely different type of radiation than anything we've talked about up to this point. Everything we've talked about so far has been what we call thermal radiation. It was just the energy of the stars. If we're looking at a star, even a protostar, if we're looking at clusters of stars, globular clusters, galaxies, we're all seeing the same type of radiation. We'd all see the same pattern. It's just a whole bunch of stars put together and you get the same type of spectrum. When we look at these active galaxies, there's something else going on in the center that's completely different. And if we look at it across the spectrum, we look at it in the visible, how bright is it? We look at it in the ultraviolet, we look at it in the infrared, we look at it in the radio. We don't see it following that distinct pattern that a star would follow. Or a galaxy or any kind of combinations of stars. We see a completely different type of radiation. So which leads to a different mechanism. It's not just the heat of a bunch of stars. There's something very interesting going on at that black hole down at the center. So now that's the right slide where we've finished up. And then we just had the summary to do that I didn't want to start on last time. Which said essentially, first of all, we looked at the Hubble classification. That was that tuning fork diagram where you started off with the elliptical galaxies and split off into the spirals and the barred spirals and the irregular galaxies. The types, there were five different types. I've got four of them up there. The spirals and the barred spirals were, were two types. The ellipticals, the irregulars, and the lenticulars were the fifth type. So there were five different groupings of galaxies that we saw. Some had disks, the spirals, the barred spirals, and the um, lenticulars. Some did not. Some were just irregular blob, were blobs, whether regular or irregular, were elliptical or irregular galaxies, just blobs of stars. In order to determine distances, we've sort of expanded and filled out our distance ladder now. We've gone through, uh, we went through spectral, we went through this, the spectroscopic parallax, the traditional parallax, using some of the, some of the, what we call standard candles. Standard candle just means they're all the same. Okay, all the RR Lyrae stars are the same brightness, so they're really all, almost exactly the same. The type 1 supernovae, it's the same process that forms every single one of them. So they're all the same. They're all going to get exactly as bright as the previous ones. So if we know how bright they are. So that's what it means. It's a standard candle. If you have you know, a flashlight that's putting out so much power, you know exactly how much power it's putting out. You know how bright it should be. And if it's br less bright, you can figure out how far away it is. If it's more bright than you'd normally expect, it's much closer. That's what we mean by a standard candle. We know exactly how bright these objects are. So all we have to do is identify one. RR Lyrae stars work in nice closer objects like the globular clusters. Type 1 supernovae work in much more distant galaxies to get the distances. Of course, the problem again with type 1 supernovae is you've got to wait. You've got to wait for it to occur. So if you want the distance to that galaxy, 
You gotta wait and you gotta wait and you gotta wait. You don't have that choice. You can't you gotta you gotta find the supernovae and measure the distances to those galaxies because that's the only way you can do it. You can't sit there and wait for the supernova to occur. Now, like stars, galaxies cluster. So our Milky Way is actually part of a cluster of about 45 galaxies that we call the local group of galaxies. So one grouping of galaxies, they um, that's a very small group. 45 is relatively small. The Virgo cluster, some of the more distant ones, actually can have thousands of galaxies in them. And the clusters group into clusters. So you get clusters of clusters of galaxies, or superclusters of galaxies that actually are even larger. And actually what we're going to be getting on in the next two chapters is looking at you know, the extent of these galaxies in the entire universe. So how are the galaxies spread out to the uni- in the, within the universe? And that's what we're going to start to see. We're starting to see here. We're seeing that galaxies have clustered together. Milky Way is a part of that. And part of one of those little tiny groupings. But those groupings get bigger and bigger as we go to larger scales until we get to a very, la- very large scale. And when things start to become, finally, the universe starts to become sort of smooth and uniform over very the extremely largest scales that we can possibly see. But we'll see those clusters tend to get larger and larger. And then finally, what did we have up here? Yep, Hubble's law. We did Hubble's law. That was the end of our distance ladder. That's how we get the distances to the furthest galaxies. And there's found that there's a relationship. The faster a galaxy is receding from us, the further away that galaxy is. So we can measure that very easily. We can measure the distance to a galaxy then just by measuring its redshift. If we can get a spectrum of that galaxy, we can now determine how far away it is. Like spectroscopic parallax, if we can measure the spectrum of a star, determine a spectral class, we know how bright it should be and we can get a distance. Well, using Hubble's law, we can do the similar thing with a galaxy. We can actually measure how far away a galaxy is just by measuring its spectrum. We don't need to know anything else about it. All we have to do is measure how shifted it, how shifted the lines are. Further they are shifted to the red, the further away that galaxy is. Then the last part of the chapter was on active galaxies. We had Seifert galaxies, radio galaxies, quasars that we talked about. And the difference with an active galaxy is that they are much brighter than a typical galaxy. So they're not, not the same brightness, they're a lot brighter. And they give us, as we mentioned just at the end, synchrotron radiation, which is very distinct from the typical radiation that we've looked at so far in this class. It's what we call a non-stellar radiation. It's not radiation produced by a whole bunch of stars. It's radiation produced by something very energetic going on deep down in the core of that galaxy. We did see a lot of jets. We saw that they were very, these objects were very small because of how they varied in brightness. They emitted high-speed jets. So we saw that. And we think the cause of all of this is incredibly big black holes at the center. The, 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 our galaxy has a black hole maybe about 4 million solar masses. That's a relatively small one. There are much, many, many bigger black holes in some of these very large galaxies and probably in these active galaxies, even larger black holes that are actually being fed by material spiraling into that black hole. That material is getting converted to energy. And at a much higher rate, for example, similar thinking about what goes on in the sun, you're converting matter to energy at a very small rate, very tiny fraction of a percent. Here you can be converting 15 or 20 percent of the matter into energy. It's a lot of energy. If you convert you know, that entire, those, when you're talking about big giant gas clouds and you're converting 10 or 15 percent of it, that's a tremendous amount of energy 
powers the active galaxy, quasar, allows us to see it over those tremendous distances, looking back 14, 13, 14 billion years. So end of material for the exam. Yay. Questions? Okay, well, let's go on to 16. We'll start on 16 since we lose two days. Oops, you don't want that yet. That's coming up. Since we lose two days next week, we're in. We're running right about on time. Actually, next week is Chapter 16's lesson, but since I'll only get to do this on Wednesday, we're going to get started on it now so we can get caught up and actually not be far too far behind and then the last two weeks, we just have the last two chapters on cosmology and on life in the universe to finish up those last couple of, last couple of class days. So chapter 16, we're still talking about galaxies, but we're going to try to go in and talk about what we ha- something we haven't yet, which is dark matter. I mentioned it a little bit early on, but I really haven't gone into a lot of detail. And here we're going to talk about dark matter and actually dark energy, another uh, ob- another thing that's out there that we're still trying to get a good handle on on understanding. So what we're going to see, first of all, with dark matter, which is the big one here, dark matter in the universe, how do we know that there is dark matter? We can't see it. How do we know it's there? And quick answer is we see its gravitational effects. It's not visible. It's completely dark. When we say dark matter, it just doesn't mean it's something that's not emitting visible light. It means we don't detect it in radio waves, we don't detect it in x-rays, we don't detect it in gamma, we don't detect it any which way. Except that we see its gravitational effects. So seeing that is something that tells us that there is a lot more matter out there. We mentioned that with the Milky Way. There's a lot more matter that is needed to be out there well beyond the edge of the Milky Way in order to account for how the stars move. And that's what we call dark matter. It's not something that we can just go and see what it is. It's something different than the typical matter that we're used to. Collisions of galaxies, we've kind of mentioned this on and off. Galaxies collisions are very common and galaxies do collide and that actually has a lot to do with how galaxies form and, and evolve. We think that a lot of the galaxies that we see today <coughs> didn't form as they are. So Milky Way may not have formed as it is, may have formed as a bunch of smaller galaxies that slowly collided over time and built up to form a spiral galaxy. So it may not have formed as one big giant galaxy. We think galaxies, especially looking very far back in the history of the universe, were probably relatively small, irregular galaxies that have since changed. And that's what we'll look at, how those have changed over time. Coming back again to black holes and the quasars, we're not quite done with them yet. There's a little bit more coming there. And then leading into chapter 17, which is chapter 17 is cosmology. It's the whole universe, essentially, the origin and the fate of the universe. We look at what does the universe look like on the biggest scales. So not just what does our galaxy look like, but what do clusters upon clusters upon clusters of galaxies look like. When we're looking at things that are you know, billions of light years, you know, what does the galaxy universe look like if you could go out and look back on it from billions of light years away and look at the whole thing? What does the universe look like? And we have some maps that have been made, you know, how the galaxies are spaced out in the universe. And there's some very interesting patterns that start to occur. You see some very good features at smaller scales. And the universe becomes very, very smooth when you get out to the largest scales. There's not a lot of big changes when you get out to the very largest scales looking at the entire universe. So coming here, this pink line we looked at before, that was our Milky Way galaxy. And that was what showed 
that there was dark matter in it. When we looked at stars, as they orbit at different distances, you can measure how fast they're orbiting by their Doppler shifts. So we know how fast they're moving. And as you go further out to the edge of the galaxy, 5, 10, 15, 20 kiloparsecs, 25 kiloparsecs, that's thousands of parsecs. So here you're at 75,000, 75, 80,000 light years. You're getting out towards the visible edge of the galaxy. What do you see as the edge of the galaxy? Okay, so we see a galaxy center here. You're getting out further, further, further. This, as you get to a certain point, the stars start to fade. As you look at the very edge there, we can actually detect stars. They're still moving at all about the same speed. That's a problem. Because they shouldn't do that. If you get out beyond all the mass and say, you know, 90% of the mass, you're inside, 90% of the mass is inside here, then these stars at the very edge should be moving slower and slower just as the planets do in the solar system. Right? Mercury moves the fastest because all the mass in the solar system is the sun. The rest is just you know, little bits of junk. You know, even Jupiter doesn't compare to the sun. So all the mass is there in the sun and the planets move slower and slower and you see sort of a decline. That they'll go out once you get past all that mass, which for the solar system is all of the, all of the planets, it goes faster close to the sun and slower and slower and slower as you get further away. We don't see that in many galaxies. You don't see it. They keep moving just at the same speed. And that tells us that there must be a lot of material out beyond the edge of this galaxy. So the galaxy, well the galaxy, the visible galaxy ends here. There must be as much material out here as we see within that entire galaxy. That's that we see in visible, that we see in x-rays, that we see in radio, that we see in infrared, any gas that we see. Not just adding up the stars, but adding in all the gas clouds and the dust clouds and everything else, there has to be that much more mass well beyond the edge of that, what we see as the edge of the galaxy. And this is how we've determined it through their, what we call the rotation curves. So how the stars rotate at different distances from the center of that galaxy. So our, our Milky Way isn't unusual. It's not something that's just confined to our Milky Way. It's actually a lot of different galaxies show the very same thing. Now another way to get some uh, distances, just uh, uh, masses of galaxies, remember masses are very difficult to determine, we need to see orbits of some way, is that you can look at how the galaxies are moving within a cluster. Okay, within a cluster of galaxies, some of the galaxies are going to be moving away from us, some are going to be moving towards us a little bit, just depending on the gravity of the cluster. But we can, if we measure their velocities, we measure how those velocities are distributed, we can then use that to determine how much mass does there have to be there so those galaxies just don't fly apart. Okay? There's a certain amount of mass, the whole, they're, they're gravitationally bound together, so yes, they'll be moving this way and that way, but they're actually in orbits and they're moving around. You need a certain amount of mass. If you don't have enough mass, then over time, like an open cluster of stars, they diffuse out into space, they slowly, this one escapes out, this one escapes out, and in a short time, astronomically, there's, you know, the cluster's gone. They're all just spread out through space. Short time astronomically might be billions of years, but the universe is 14 billion years old. If the, there's not enough mass, these galaxy clusters would have all disappeared. So there has to be enough mass to keep them bound together. If we do that calculation and we go through, we can just look at, okay, they're, so they're going this fast towards us, this fast away, this, we're measuring all those speeds, then we can find out again how much mass do we need that we still see the cluster. There's less mass than the clusters, boom, it's gone. 
Not like that, no, but over a long period of time, you know, not like I take out the mass and then all of a sudden the cluster just expands away and two years later it's gone, you know, a billion years later, it'll slowly diffuse out. It hasn't happened. These clusters are still here after 14 billion years. So there must be enough matter to keep them gravitationally bound. And what do we find out? Well, if we look at galaxies, the galaxies must have between 3 and 10 times more mass than what we observe in order to explain those rotation curves. So all the mass you add up, you look at that galaxy, you count the, cent- the black hole at the center, that's accounted for. Okay, you can account for that because we know we can measure that and think how much mass is there. We can measure up, you know, estimate get how many stars there are, the masses of the stars. We can make measurements to get how much gas and dust there is and figure out masses. And they're off. Not by 10%, not by 20%, but by 3, 4, 5, 10 times. Meaning that for every star you see in a galaxy, there's got to be 5 to 10 stars worth of matter outside the visible bounds of that galaxy. That's a lot of matter that you're not seeing. So it's not just, oh, we need a few more stars or a few black holes out there to explain it. There's a lot of matter spread out beyond the edges of that galaxy that we do not see. We only see it through its gravitational effects on the rotation of the galaxy. Now that was bad enough, right? But it's worse in galaxy clusters. I just explained how you measure those with their velocities. In order to keep them bound, you not only need For every galaxy you see in that cluster, there's got to be 10 to 100 times more mass there that we don't see. It's a lot of mass that is missing. So it's not just, oh, well, the galaxies, there's a big halo around each galaxy that we just can't see. But it's even worse than that because there's more matter missing in the clusters to hold them together than can be explained simply by adding up all this matter that we don't see in the galaxies. Well, it's just the same. You know, If it was the same numbers, then it would be only one thing. But now there's even more matter. There's even more dark matter in these clusters to try to be able to explain. Why are the clusters bound together? Based on this, the clusters should have flown apart a long, long time ago. There should be no clusters of galaxies visible. They would have all expanded out and the galaxies would just be randomly distributed. In order to keep those clusters together, there's got to be a lot more mass. And again, not just 10% more, not just 20, not even 50% more, not even just twice as much. But, you know, 10, 50, 100 times for every galaxy that you see, there's that much more mass out there in order to explain the observations we make. And again, I'll go back. There's there's another there's another option. Is our grav is our understanding of gravity wrong? It's a, it's another possibility, you know, is 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 Einstein wrong when you talk about these very big distances? Does gravity work differently when you talk about scales of galaxies and clusters of galaxies? Doesn't seem to be from any of our measurements. It works perfectly on everything else, but is there some other gravity, something else that's needed to explain it? That's another possibility that could sort of take this into into account. I'm not necessarily suggesting that it is, but it's something else that is out there that could be a possibility. Could there be some new theory of gravity that says, you know, you don't need all this matter because something else happens when you're talking about billions of light years between these galaxies. Maybe gravity works a little bit differently. But that's not what we're finding right now. Right now we're saying it's probably got to be, there's got to be extra matter there. So we do find some. We can get some very hot gases. We, you know, this is all the stuff we've detected and where there's still matter missing well beyond that. So actually looking at some of these clusters, within a cluster of galaxies there's sort of a very hot gas, 10 million degrees. 
Now, hot enough to fuse hydrogen into helium, right? Not quite because it's a very, it's a very diffuse gas. Denser at the center, very diffuse, but spread out throughout this entire cluster. So when you look up here in visible and in x-rays, where you see the x-ray emission with the contour lines, each of the little dots would be a galaxy. So you're seeing all these galaxies and you have this x-ray emission coming from it. Again, that's matter we can actually detect. That's some of the material we can detect. And a little bit of the excess material, but once we can detect it, we're still missing many, many times what we actually see. So there is, some, there is some evidence for some kinds of gas there that we can detect, but not enough to, as with our, gal- as with our own galaxy, there, was, there we could say, well, we can detect some of these white dwarfs or black holes that may be way out there that are just too far, too faint to be able to see, very faint white dwarfs. That could account for some of the matter that was perhaps missing, but not for all of it. Here's some more evidence for that gas. This is what we call a head-tail radio galaxy. Right? The jets get thrown out perpendicular. Well, not this one. This one's actually getting turned back. And you've got one there, and you've got, if you look at it in the radio and visual here, this is just a radio image. This is the radio and visual combined. You get these large lobes that are pushed backwards as it moves through perhaps something else. So it looks like you know, you've got this big thing like this. You know, you've got your arms out, and you're moving very quickly. They're going to get pushed behind you. Well, if this galaxy is moving very quickly through that cluster and there's a gas there, it's going to push the arms behind it. It's going to be pushed behind just naturally as it moves through that material. So you can think of that as this is moving this way relatively quickly and the arms get swept behind. These are going out straight, you know, perpendicular as we've looked at in all the others, but here they're actually getting swept back as it moves through the gas within that cluster. So we see some of that in some radio galaxies. So some more evidence in addition to the x-rays that there is a gas you know, permeating that part of the, whole, the whole cluster. So there's an entire gas that's permeating throughout that entire cluster. But as I mentioned, there's some gas there. It's been there forever. It's probably all hydrogen. Hydrogen, maybe a little bit of helium that goes back to the very earliest days of the universe. It might be partially left over from the Big Bang when the universe was formed. But there's not enough of it. Not near enough of it to explain for all the matter that we are missing. That's hiding, that's hiding there someplace. So it can account for a little bit of that dark matter that we don't normally see when we just look at things. But there's a lot more, there has to be a lot more material out there to explain how the galaxies move. And we're not seeing it. So a big question that astronomers are working on currently is what is this dark matter? What is it made up of? What is it composed of? And how does does the gravity of it affect everything? But a little bit of the things we've seen, again, we've looked at white dwarfs, we looked at black holes, we looked at all these little things that could be scattered out there. There's not near enough of that to account for the matter that we're missing. And what astronomers tend to think is that it's some other different type of matter. So that the matter that we're used to and the matter that we've studied up to this point in the class, the typical matter, you know, this stuff, is only a tiny portion of the universe. Ends up coming up like 3% of the material in the universe is what we call normal matter. So that's all the stars, all the galaxies, all of us. That's only a tiny fraction of what the universe is. There's actually some other kind of material out there that we don't see, We only feel its gravitational effects. And that's the only way we detect it. 
So we don't have any way. It doesn't give off any light. It doesn't give off any, you know, any heat, any light, any radiation that we can actually detect. Now, going off into galaxy collisions for a little bit here. And I mentioned this before. I sort of gave the example in the room that we could, you know, pick out 10, 10 little BBs and bounce them around the room. And we can, if they can get them bouncing and just going all over the place, they're never going to collide with each other. Right? Maybe they're one rare one in a billion. But they're just going to bounce around and be here or there. If you could keep them bouncing, they're going to just bounce past each other. They're never going to hit each other. They're relatively small compared to how far apart they are. If we took 10 great big beach balls and bounced them around the room, they're going to bang into each other, right? They're going to constantly bang into each other, and that is what the galaxies are doing. Galaxies are very big. And let's see, we did this, oh, was that your class? might be the other class. We did a calculation, and one of the classes does a calculation that, you know, how far apart is, are the Milky Way and Andromeda compared to their size? Is that you? I don't remember. That was like way back in homework one. But wasn't, it might have been the 103 class has to do that one. I should add it to this class. It's a good one. But there are about 25 times. There's only, you can fit about 25 Milky Ways between here and Andromeda. That's not a lot. How many stars could you hit, fit between here and the next star? You know, how many stars could you, you know, 25, well, that's a lot. Well, you put 25 stars, well, you haven't even gotten out of the solar system. You're still talking well within the planets. You could put 25 suns next to each other, let alone beginning to get close to the nearest star. So the galaxies are very close to each other. It's very easy for them to collide. And we see lots of examples out there where galaxies have collided together. And one of them we see here, this is an example of one, which is the Cartwheel Galaxy. Looks very unusual. Doesn't look like any typical galaxy that we mentioned when we went through their classifications. Right? Very blue part portion here around almost a ring of material. And some material down here, a little bit redder. And that's probably the result of a head-on collision. Perhaps one of these uh, galaxies actually passed through it, might have gone through it over billions of years, went through, has now passed through, and left the remnants behind from the collision. So collided, again, the galaxies collide. The stars pass right by each other. They're fine. So you can get two galaxies, and they just go whoosh right through. The stars go right past each other. But you've also got these big gas clouds. Well, gas clouds are big. So they're going to collide. When you collide a gas cloud, you make more stars. There they all are in that big ring around there. Nice bright blue stars that form because of this collision. So the stars would have formed eventually, but the collision enhanced how those gas clouds got them condensing faster and formed a lot of stars. So we see in colliding galaxies a lot of evidence of star formation relatively recent. So here it looks like there's relatively recent stars that have formed a lot more than normal. Not what you'd see in a typical galaxy. So the galaxy doesn't look anything like what it normally would. And it's got a lot more star formation. But we see these kinds all over, all over the sky. It's a big percentage of the galaxies that actually look like they're colliding. Eventually, they'll calm back down, too. So it's quite likely that our Milky Way has, has collided with other galaxies. The Andromeda galaxy probably has, just not recently. You know, might have been hundreds of millions of years ago or a billion years ago, it's had time to settle back down. Think about throwing a rock into the pond, right? Make a big splash there for a short time, come back 10 minutes later, could you tell it ever happened? No. It's gone, right? It's all settled back down. Well, come back 10 minutes later universal time, you know, not our time, not our 10 minutes. Don't sit there and wait and watch it. But come back, you know, hundreds of millions of years or a billion years later, 
and the galaxy will have calmed back down. The stars that formed will have died that would have settled back down to probably a similar spiral structure that it had. And it would look like a relatively normal galaxy at that point. So, but we still see a lot of them. We do see a lot of evidence of these galaxies that have collided. So very, very common for galaxies to collide. Here's another one. We've got two galaxies. You know, two galaxies don't look that different. This is probably in the, in the initial stages. So the one we looked, first one we looked at was in the later stages of a collision. This is one of the initial stages. So you've got one galaxy probably coming in here, one, one here. Why do I say initial stages? Well, they look pretty normal still so far, right? Not a lot of time. You haven't had a lot of time for things to happen. So these are in the process of colliding. This one still looks you know, relatively normal. What we do see is that there's excess star formation. No, you can't just tell at it from looking in this case. You're not going to be able to notice that. But if you measure how many stars there are, you know, what the blueness is of a typical spiral galaxy, these are going to be a little bit bluer. You're getting excess stars forming over what you would normally have gotten. Depending on the exact collision and how much energy the galaxies lost, how they're coming towards each other, you can actually get galaxies merging together and forming larger galaxies. So we think that's part of the way galaxies grow. They cannibalize their little companions, right? They take, collect, collect one and add a little bit more material and more material. Doesn't happen instantaneously, but over 14 billion years from when the initial galaxies formed, you would have built up galaxies into larger and larger galaxies. When we looked at some of these galaxy clusters, they were dominated in many cases by a gigantic galaxy with trillions of times the mass of the sun. You know, much bigger than our own Milky Way. And they probably, you know, sucked up a lot of galaxies in the time, built a lot of other galaxies, little galaxies, big galaxies, collected everything, and become these dominant galaxies in the cluster. So mergers are part of the collisions. You can get collisions in some cases, depending on how they are. They might just pass through and give us a big splash like we saw in that first picture. You might get some, in this case, likely, where if we could come back a couple hundred million years from now and look at it again, you know, you might have two galaxies in the process of merging together. If you could come back in a billion years, you might just see a nice, bigger spiral galaxy. Very much bigger than the other one was. So the two would have, co would have coalesced. Here's another example. This is the antenna galaxy. A little antennae coming out there on the picture. The picture of it is on the left-hand side there. So again, a lot of star formation. Here we see the cores of the galaxies. You see some very large star clusters that are visible at this distance when we look in here at this little, this is just looking at this little tiny bit of the core here. It's looking at that section. So we see a core of one galaxy, the core of the other. They haven't com fully combined yet. So like stellar evolution, galaxy collisions are something we can't watch. You know, they don't occur you know, like a car collision. You don't want to watch it, but you, you, could, you could see it happen. right? It starts, it collides, it's over. Well, to the galaxy it probably is the same way, right? but it takes hundreds of millions of years for this collision to actually occur. So it could take hundreds of millions of years for these galaxies to actually collide and eventually coalesce. So we're seeing it at different stages. We see one in this stage, one in that stage, and again, like the stellar evolution, we have to piece together what is actually happening along with some kind of computer models. So what you see on the far right hand side is actually a computer model to simulate this type of collision. So you set your parameters right, right, you put a whole bunch of stars in two galaxies, let the computer bring them close together. Each star interacts gravitationally with all of the others. 
and do all those calculations at once and find out what do we end what do we end up with? We can end up with something that looks very similar to that. Does it look exactly the same? No. It's not going to look exactly the same because when you do a computer simulation, well the easiest way to do it is to make things all symmetrical and nice and easy. So the, the what result that comes out looks nice and symmetrical. You get this arm exactly like this, this arm exactly like this. You get a nice little loop here, a loop here, a bulge. It all looks exactly the same. It looks like a mirror image of each other, right? Draw a line through here, you can put a mirror and fold them up. It doesn't quite work in the real picture. When you look at this one, it's not quite so evenly lined up. Well, one star might have a little bit more mass. The stars might have been not evenly distributed as much and you get a slightly different. But the whole idea is that we can theoretically collide galaxies together and get similar things to what we see in the sky. We can actually go through and make you know, computer models and say, here, what happens if we collide the two galaxies? If you've got two spiral galaxies, add John, if what happens if you collide them like this? What happens if you collide them like that? What if they're at different angles? What happens in the collision? And you can use those to match up some of what we actually see in the sky. Because again, that's the way you can watch a galaxy collide, because you can run time forward a lot faster on a computer. Right? Run forward at, you know, each second can be millions of years, can be a million years. You can jump forward that quickly. Whereas you can't do that. You've got to sit there and wait the million years if you're going to watch the actual galaxies moving. What are we doing? Okay. So, galaxy formation. These are some of the very large clusters. The little images up here at the very top are some very distant, ga very distant galaxies. So we think that some of these are, as we look back, are the very, are the very uh, sort of the <coughs> precursors to a galaxy. You know, what formed before the galaxies? They were you know, gigantic star clusters. So very big. Not, not like globular clusters, not like you know, regular open clusters here, but tremendous star clusters, but smaller than a typical galaxy. And that's what we think happened early on in the universe. That when we look way back in the history of the universe, so the nice thing is with astronomy is that you can look back in time. When we look back at galaxies that are 14 billion light years away, we don't see, we don't know what they look like right now. I have no clue. Light hasn't gotten here yet from what they look like this instant. We see them as they were 14 billion years ago, 13 billion years ago. So we can actually go back and study what did galaxies look like 13 billion years ago. Well, all I got to do is find galaxies that are 13 billion light years away. And say, here's what typical galaxies look like. We know what they look like. What do those same ones look like today? I have no clue. They're probably all, they're probably all gone and combined with other galaxies and collided. They're, they're dead and gone. But we can look back and see them. So that's what we're seeing here. This is sort of one of those very distant fields of galaxies that we see. See a few stars scattered in there, the little diffraction spikes on them, but most of what you see on there is actually galaxies. Few bigger ones might be in the foreground, but when you look back, they tend to be all very small galaxies. So what we think happens is very early on, you know, here's what you have. You have lots of small galaxies, some teeny tiny ones, some medium size, but none of the gigantic galaxies that we see today. And over time they would collide and coalesce and form much bigger galaxies and bigger galaxies until you get to today and you have fewer galaxies than you had back then but you have much larger galaxies. So the galaxies have gotten significantly larger. So we think that galaxies form, form this way. They, form, they start out very small. They don't just form a great big galaxy. So when we talk about the formation of the Milky Way, perhaps overall the initial part formed by you know, collapsing big cloud, 
But perhaps the Milky Way a long time ago was actually a number of different galaxies that have since combined together and formed what we form what we see today for most of those galaxies. So much larger galaxies are only relatively recent. We don't see, when we look back and we look at those galaxies that are the furthest things away, they're also relatively small. Now this happened very quickly in the early part of the universe. It would have been very quick collisions. The, ga- the universe would have been a lot denser with galaxies. So you would have had a lot more collisions. Instead of having a galaxy here and a galaxy here, you might have had five galaxies or ten galaxies in between the two. So you'd have a lot more collisions, even though they're still moving around the same. And they would have collided a lot more frequently. So the collisions would have occurred at a quicker rate earlier on and would be slowing down now. If galaxies are getting further apart, they're not as likely to collide. Not stopped, we still see a lot of collisions, but it would be something that would be slowing down and the mergers would start to slow down. But it's still happening today. I mean, our, our own galaxy is cannibalizing some of its little satellite galaxies. You know, not going to be gone you know, next week or next month, but if you come back and look at the Milky Way galaxy and look at things you know, millions of years, tens of millions of years of now, hundreds of millions of years, I showed you the local group, well, some of those small galaxies around us will be gone. <coughs> They'll get too close. You know, there are any elliptical orbits around the, the, our galaxy. They might get too close. They'll get disrupted and torn apart and incorporated into our own galaxy. So that's what we think has happened. And again, our galaxy will eventually is on a collision course with Andromeda. Come back in a few billion years. You've got to wait. So no, that's not what happens on December 31st. So. But December 21st, sorry, not the 31st. 31st you don't have to worry about this year. Because everything's done on the 21st, which is after the final. I still got to take the final. You might not get grades, but... <laughs> so that's the way we think galaxies form now. We think that they form through collisions. They start out as smaller galaxies, probably irregular galaxies, and then slowly combine to form either ellipticals or spirals, depending on exactly how they form, how the collisions go. This is what we call the Hubble Deep Field, which is looking at some of the most distant galaxies. A lot of what we see when we look at these, the numbers are sort of telling you the distances. The bigger number are the furthest galaxies. So these ones that are like 0.2, that's a relatively nearby galaxy. 0.0, these are relatively nearby. But when we look at some of these furthest ones right here, for example, uh, is there anything else really, really far away there? There's a 2.8 right there. Those are, those are extremely distant galaxies. Those are among the furthest. When we look at them and we look at the types of galaxies, we see a lot of irregulars. We see a lo- when you look at those most distant galaxies, you know, not just all of those, but if you look at which ones are the most distant, we see a lot more irregular galaxies than we see around today. So it's sort of a piece of evidence towards the galaxies have formed by mergers, because when we look back in time, look at the very earliest galaxies, there were lots of irregular galaxies. There's still some, some that have not collided, you know, the Large Magellanic Cloud is a good example. It's only a regular galaxy that orbits around ours. But we do see a lot of those further back off in the distant past. And the bigger these numbers are, the further away things, the further away the galaxies are. So when we look at those ones that are billions of light years away, we tend to see a lot of irregular galaxies. Let me see what's... Here's one more example. Just again, a little bit more. It's all to do with that star formation that occurs there. So here's more evidence of collisions between the galaxies. So galaxies colliding together. So you see a couple different galaxies. In some cases, you can actually separate two galaxies. You can see one here and one here. 
You can see a galaxy here and a galaxy here as they're in the process of colliding. Sometimes they've gotten too, you know, confused. They're collide, they're maybe in the process of forming a larger galaxy. Maybe there's one little galaxy here and here. It's a lot less distinct. So at different times you're able to see, depending on the exact orientation of the collisions, you may be able to see the separate galaxies. You may just be able to see the results of it. You may just be able to see that there's a lot of star formation going on in this galaxy and that it has collided, but you don't know whether it's you know, coalesced with the other galaxy. You don't know what's exactly going on or if it's passed through and is behind it and we just can't see it right now. Or if it passed through longer ago and it's actually moved off and it's off in the distance as we looked at some of those others. So galaxy collisions, just to finish up what we're working on today, it are really, were really important in terms of determining the galaxies that we see today. And I'm going to come back to that on Wednesday, next Wednesday, and we'll finish up, hopefully most, it's probably finish a good chunk of chapter 16 if we don't complete it, and that'll leave us right about on schedule for the last two chapters for the last two weeks. So, questions? Questions? Otherwise, we're about ready. I'll take a break and then I'll get the stuff ready for the, we'll do our lab on the solar observations project. Mm -hmm.